So I want to continue our combined exploration, the theme of this intensive, koans, and more specifically, the, the psychology of Zen koans that Joel began for us yesterday. But we just continued with a very open discussion during inquiry. Zen is known as a special transmission outside of words and letters. Special transmission outside of words and letters. That's a common phrase that's been used. So why is that? They're making the point, they're pointing out that while the sutras and texts that have been handed down to us contain many pointers, the pointers are not it. There's a famous introduction in Zen Flesh, Zen Bones by Paul Reps, where when uh, the first Zen patriarch, Bodhidharma, after he brought Zen to China from India, according to his biographer, Bodhidharma wished to go home and gathered his disciples about him to test the apperception. <clears throat> Dofuku went first. Dofuku said, in my opinion, the truth is beyond affirmation or negation, for this is the way it moves. Bodhidharma replied, you have my skin. The nun Soji said, in my view, it is like Ananda's sight of the Buddha land, seen once and forever. Bodhidharma answered, you have my flesh. Dofuku said, the four elements of light, airiness, fluidity, and solidity are empty, and the five skandhas are no things. In my opinion, no thing is reality. Bodhidharma commented, you have my bones. Finally, Ika bowed before the master and remained silent. Bodhidharma said, you have my marrow. Old Zen was so fresh, it became treasured and remembered. Here are the fragments of its skin, flesh, bones, but not its marrow, never found in words. Kohans kind of have a reputation in, in our culture as being uh, riddles or enigmatic puzzles that are intentionally opaque. And yesterday, uh, Joel was very open and provided a great personal example of the barriers they present to us when we first encounter them. Uh, and I think he was just voicing uh, what we all feel, what I know 
I felt and do feel, you know, when I encounter koans as well. So perhaps it's good to begin with, with why that is. This is from the Mumon Khan, The Gateless Gate, which is a classic collection of Zen koans. And here they're talking about finding your essential nature and the method of finding your essential nature. The entrance into Zen is the grasping of one's essential nature. It is absolutely impossible, however, to come to a clear understanding of our essential nature by any intellectual or philosophical method. It is accomplished only by the experience of self-realization through Zazen. And the koans used in Zen can be seen through only when looked at from the essential point of view. Therefore, to the person whose enlightened eye has not been opened, Zen koans seem impractical, illogical, and against common sense. Once this eye has been opened, however, all koans express natural matters and relate the most obvious of realities. So it's about finding your essential nature, touching the Buddha nature, discovering it for yourself. As Barry Majid says, and nothing is hidden, Traditional Zen koans offer us a chance to encounter and re-engage with what we consciously or unconsciously consider not me. Sometimes, as in my case, it will be a part of me that is considered damaged, shameful, or incongruent with the person I'm trying to be. But there is a much wider range of self-experience from which we may be cutting ourselves off we may try to deny or minimize our animal nature, striving to be rational rather than emotional, in control rather than vulnerable to the vicissitudes of life. We may attempt to deny our very mortality and try to make what we call the spiritual into a portal into another, perhaps immortal life beyond death. We may deny the part of ourselves that is interconnected and dependent on others, seeking autonomy and stoic self-sufficiency. And finally, we may cut ourselves off from our own intrinsic wholeness and perfection, idealizing teachers or Buddhas whom we imagine are utterly and qualitatively different from ourselves, beings of another order whose attainments can never really be fully our own. So we're looking for our essential nature, for this opening. And as Barry says, to contact or consider what's not me, what's been broken off. From the Gateless Gate, the case number one, the most famous one, does a dog have Buddha nature? And this is from the commentary 
Um, and case number one, moo, like the sound of one hand clapping, those are considered, uh, I think it's called bateau, or opening koans, koans that in the, uh, I want to say, Zen training curriculum, let's put it that way, Zen training curriculum, <clears throat> you know, are, are seen as an opening, an initial, a way to, to provide students with an initial glimpse into the, their Buddha nature, no separation. And uh, before I read this, you know, I'll, I'll draw your attention to the title, The Gateless Gate which is the translation of the Mumon Khan, a gateless gate, a gate, something you pass through, right? something that divides one side from another. Right? But in this case, it's a gateless gate, one where there is no barrier. One, it, it questions about, is there a division at all? If anyone can walk through at any time, is it a gate? Wumon's commentary. Those who have passed the barrier are able not only to see Joshu's face, Joshu face to face, but also to walk hand in hand with the whole descending line of patriarchs and be eyebrow to eyebrow with them. You will see with the same eye that they see with hear with the same ear that they hear with. Wouldn't it be a wonderful joy? Isn't there anyone who wants to pass this barrier? This is his commentary about what's on the other side of this gate. This gate. You will you'll see Joshu face to face. The implication is, if you can see this, if you can open your mind's eye to see this, then you'll see as they saw. You'll feel what they feel, that there's no separation. And there's a lot of this uh, type of language in the koan literature. Further down, this is the commentary on the commentary of the same koan. We like to comment. Uman says, it will astonish the heavens and shake the earth. You will feel as though the whole universe has totally collapsed. Strange as it may seem, this experience has the power to free you from the agonies of the world. It emancipates you from anxiety over all worldly suffering. You feel as though the heaven burdens, I'm sorry, you feel as though the heavy burdens you have been carrying in mind and body have suddenly fallen away. It is a great surprise. The joy and happiness at that time are beyond all words. And there are no philosophies or theories attached to it. This is the enlightenment, the Satori of Zen. Once you have attained this experience, you'll become perfectly free. 
pretty bold claims, right? Very bold claims. There's a lot of those kinds of words in the koan collections. It seems important to them. So the traditional teachings is that koans are the gateway to enlightenment experiences. Digesting them allows you to be face to face with the patriarchs, matriarchs. Your eyebrows will be entangled with their eyebrows. That's, that's pretty darn close. <laughs> but in our tradition here in Appamata, and, and mainly in the United States, we don't, we don't engage in koan practice that way. Uh, in the Soto lineage of which we're a part, where shikantaza are just sitting is more the mode of practice training. We don't put as much emphasis in this, into these enlightenment, enlightenment experiences. As Barrys talks about in his book, you know, we're in a dual lineage, at least he is. I don't know what point we would not, we wouldn't say I was, but uh, Joko, who trained with Taizan Mazumi Roshi, did the full course of koan study. And in the Rinzai lineage, that was, you know, after passing an initial koan like Mu, um, was a curriculum of koan study and passing of koans that goes on for more than a thousand of them. Right? It's a it's a, a long curriculum. And so Taizan Mazumi Roshi used koan study primarily. And Joko did it completely and receive Dharma transmission from him in that way, and then abandoned it. So it's interesting to hear Barry's take and what he says about Joko about why that is. Why is it we're all here talking about Joko all the time and we aren't passing koans? Barry said, it turned out that even the, the seemingly most intense transcendent experiences faded and their afterglow did not so reliably trickle down into the recesses of our unconscious minds. More and bigger realizations were not by themselves the answer. Not only did realization fail to heal the deep divisions in our character, more and more it looked as if for many people, and in particular for many Zen teachers, practice opened up bigger and bigger splits between an idealized, compassionate self and a shadow self, where it split off and denied sexuality, competitive, and narcissistic fantasies held sway. Although the traditional koan system was touted as being designed precisely to bring one down from the hundred foot pole of pernicious oneness. So the hundred foot pole is a common phrase in Zen and uh, it evokes achieving some attainment or some height. 
right? So coming down from the 100-foot pole of pernicious oneness, uh, in parentheses, he says, the use of spiritual experiences of any kind to remain above it all. So traditional column system was touted as being designed to precisely bring one down from the 100-foot pole of pernicious oneness its capacity to engage and work through the character disorder in light of and within the crucible of realization turned out to be severely limited. In psychological terms, one would say that though it delivered on the promise of insight, it failed in the process of working through, of integrating realization with our deeply ingrained character styles. My own teacher, Joko Beck, declared that koans simply failed to address emotion in any meaningful and systematic way. She was speaking from experience, and she was no doubt correct in her assessment, given her teacher's extraordinary proficiency at teaching koans and his equally extraordinary personal failings as a human being. So there's some limits to koans, he's pointing out. <clears throat> They're not a magic pill that will take away all of your habitual reactivity and bad behavior. And so we end up in this psychologically minded lineage where Joko turned her teaching style towards your life koan, working with your life as it is. In fact, changing the words of the four practice principles to say, life as it is, your only teacher. Every day, every time we sit, to remind you of that. You can't escape your koan. Anytime you think you're rising above it, look around, where's your teacher? Gateless gate. So if there's no gate, why do we struggle to enter? Why don't we experience this oneness in our lives? Instead, seeing barriers in our path. Quoting Barry again. But actually, the gatelessness of Mu means just the opposite of impenetrable. The gate in life itself, is wide open to us just as it is. In fact, there is really no barrier anywhere. So why is there a problem? Why is Mu so difficult to pass through? Simply because we don't experience that openness in our lives at all. We feel that there are barriers everywhere, inside and out. Barriers that we don't want to face or cross, barriers of fear, anger, pain, old age, and death. We think that all these forms of suffering block our path. We don't see or trust that they themselves are gates. Everything is a gate, and we can enter anywhere 
The hard work of our practice is learning to recognize and acknowledge that we ourselves have imagined and set up these barriers. Only when we are really willing to enter the territory they have shut off from us will we find ourselves in that wide open, barrierless life that women offer to show us. So at the most basic level then, this old story about Chaochu, a monk and a dog, is all about a problem of separation, about the artificial barriers we experience within ourselves and between one another, cutting us off as life is it, cutting us off from life as it is. And Wuman offers us the teaching of concentrating on this one word, mu, as a way of breaking down these barriers. So this is why mu and one hand are initial koans, because the first problem we need to solve for ourselves is why we think not me. Why we think we're separate. Fundamental dualism that we bring to everything. That's the barrier. And you don't pass Nu by explaining why they say no or why they say yes. You pass it by presenting your whole self to the master, by presenting your body-mind to them, not with an intellectual answer, but with you. Can you demonstrate no separation? They might ask you, what does no separation look like? What does move in the marketplace? You have to answer with your body mind. Show me move at the grocery store. These are not intellectual answers. <clears throat> The paradox of Chao Chu's answer, his answer moved to the question, does the dog have Buddha nature? The paradox of this arises out of a conflict between what the monk knows intellectually, intellectually to be the right answer and his own deeply ingrained feeling that there is an unbridgeable gap between the rarefied spiritual world of Buddha nature, which seems to exist millions of miles away from the real world of dogs and miserable ordinary monks like himself. The gap, seemingly so real, is nonetheless a creation of his own thoughts, his own preoccupation with have and have not. Barry says, Mu is emotional flypaper for our own thoughts and beliefs about what separates us and why we can't be it. Emotional flypaper. So basically, it elicits, it brings up our beliefs, our habitual reactions, our stories about why and what's going on. They all get stuck to it. When the Zen teacher asks you to show me Mu, the teacher demands that of the student, you know, when he asks you, what is Mu? It's precisely like asking, what is life? Show me this life. 
You can't answer by somehow standing outside of life, examining it and offering your description. You yourself must become the answer. So Mu is designed as a powerful medicine for self-centeredness, to counteract it. But as Barry said, it's good to be aware of the side effects. These koans don't magically dissolve our, our habitual reactivity or our uh, underlying behavioral problems. They just offer us an insight into what no separation looks like, what it feels like. Life as it is, our only teacher. Life as it is, the only teacher. I've heard Barry say before in some of his recorded talks that Shoku, when she was discussing Zen teachers and whatever new Dharma teacher was had come to town to give a talk, she would say, you want to know how far I'd go to meet a new Zen teacher? Maybe across the room? Maybe. Because she really felt that life was your teacher. Learning to work with it was going to be more useful than learning to work with koans. She was very interested in bringing back in what we tried to push out with our spiritualness, or we tried to stuff away and hide and say, oh, I can get on that 100-foot pole and rise above it. No. Disassociation is not the way. Life as it is, the only teacher. Barry says, our practice is a dialectic between self-discovery, that is, what no one can do for us, and self-forgetting, a forsaking of will and a surrender into a life of practice that is not of our own creation. Self-discovery must discover for ourselves, and self-forgetting, surrendering into a life of practice that we're not creating.
Barry says, our path will start with whatever curative fantasies we harbor, and it will meander through many byways of trial and error as we slowly, reluctantly come to face life, life as it is. These koans can be flypaper for our curative fantasies. Curative fantasies, that's one of Barry's ongoing phrases. Our fantasy of what's going to cure us. If only I understood that koan. If only I could break through. If I could just, if I could just, there's a blank there that each of us has to fill in for ourselves. What is that? fantasy that's going to cure us? And what's our secret pra practice that we continue to work at towards that curative fantasy? Quoting Barry again, I've written previously of the curative fantasies that all of us bring to the start of practice. These are inevitable. And, like transference in a therapeutic relationship, are precisely what practice is designed to elicit and work through. So he's saying a curative fantasy, you know, that's just where we start. And that um, this practice is going to elicit those. It's going to make them come to the surface. And if we learn to pay attention in the right way, hopefully bring them into consciousness. Quoting again, they are precisely what practice is designed to elicit and work through. Yet remnants of our old fantasies can remain lodged in our unconscious through a lifetime of practice and often reveal themselves when we find ourselves measuring ourselves against the descriptions of the enlightenment experiences of the old masters. But those old stories are themselves hagiographic constructions arranged to one degree or another within a certain formulaic narrative structure so as to illuminate and epitomize a traditional model of what constitutes a master and what constitutes the experience of enlightenment. At its most extreme, this can mean measuring ourselves against a fairy tale Practice may, I hope, over time make me somewhat wiser, less self-centered, more joyous person, but it will no more turn me into Shakyamuni than Gandalf. Gandalf's the fictional wizard, if you don't know that one. It's pretty harsh, right? But we, we do know that a lot of so at least some of these koan stories are suspect. Um, you know, I think it's the sixth patriarch of Huining and the Platform Sutra, as many Buddhist scholars now say, a lot of that's probably just made up, invented, because in Chinese and in Asian culture, um, establishing your, your lineage, your historical right and place was so important, they had to kind of invent a branch to make sure it linked to that. 
we have to make sure we're not measuring ourselves against fairy tales. Or Gandalf. Maybe we could use Harry Potter now. I don't know when this book was written. Harry Potter might work. So the koans, I think Joel probably mentioned this at the beginning, you know, koan is a combined word, koan uh, means public case, right, or public record. It's a public recording or documentation of something that transpired. And it's almost used in the same way that um, uh, historical court cases are used, right, like Roe v. Wade. Brown versus the Board of Education, right? a turning point that everyone recognizes this case represents a step. And so it's been preserved. It has usefulness for our training. And some, like the Huanto of Mu and One Hand, are designed to elicit a breakthrough experience. And some are just uh, designed to emphasize a point of practice. And some are funny and seem like jokes, yes. Jokes with a point. Zen is known as a special transmission outside all words and letters, pointing to the marrow of mind. There are many, the last thing I want to bring up and, and is talk about koan collections and why they're there. There are many koan collections that have been recorded and transcribed, passed down as important and almost sacred in our lineages. The Blue Cliff Record, or Hekiganroku. There's a hundred cases in that book, coming to us from, what, over a thousand years? The Mumon Khan, or Gateless Gate, or Gateless Barrier, 48 cases. The Book of Serenity, or Shoyo Roku, that has 100 cases in it. Shaseki Shu, or Collection of Stone and Sand. The Record of the Transmitting of the Light. The record of the empty hall. There's a lot. I'm just pointing to how many there are, how many different books there are, how long they've lasted, how long they've survived, how they've continued to be passed down, warm hand to warm hand. Why is that? Why do we think that is? Obviously, they're thought of as very important. 
Our ancestors wrote down and saved thousands of them. They made it into the teaching curriculum. A special transmission beyond all words and letters. And yet, thousands of written documents of transmission. But if we step back for a moment and say, what's the content of them? What did they write down? They wrote down a meeting. They didn't write down a sutra. They wrote down warm hand to warm hand. Two people met. Something happened. They connected. Something was transmitted there. It was important. So what we have, what we're left with, is not riddles. What we're left with is thousands of documents of a warm hand to warm hand meeting, of relating, of transmitting this mind, this very mind, this ordinary mind, from one to another. The records of encounters between people. Vignettes of relationship. Moments that mattered. All of our practices meeting. Sometimes we just meet our confusion about the stories we hear. Sometimes they get through and we take something away with them. But if you take away anything from me today, I want you to take away that it's the meeting. It's the relating. And I'll share my own little koan where when when Peg was creating a big book, a picture book for Flint's birthday, I forget which birthday it was, five or 10 years ago, maybe I'm looking at Joel, see if he remembers that. I'm sure some of you guys remember that. She asked for Flint stories or things like that. I don't remember which how she put it. And I was, uh, I immediately knew I had one, which was my little co-op to record. It was probably maybe my, second or third year of intense practice with Flint as my primary teacher. You know, I was coming here four or five days a week and doing three or four intensives a year. Seeing him for practice discussion as much as I could. <clears throat> and the bell rang and I went into the practice discussion room with Flint that morning. And I bowed and I sat down and I was trembling because I was so nervous. And I said, I'm really getting tired of trying to impress you. And he just looked at me and his face smiled and he said, thank goodness. It's 
So I take that with me, warm hand to warm hand. A few minutes available if anyone has any questions or comments or reflections. Lisa has her hand up. Yes, Lisa. You're muted still. I can't remember the name of the book. Um, it's by Daniel Stern, who um, wrote about the interpersonal world of the infant. And I hope I'm not botching it. It's been probably 15 years since I did a study group. It's a pretty small book, but um, he he speaks, I think, from a psychological perspective about what you're talking about. Uh, it, that insight is insufficient to be mutative in someone's life and it's the moments of meeting that in his practice he found when two souls genuinely met in the therapeutic encounter that was more mutative than um, a moment of uh, interpretive insight I guess and um, I've carried that with me for many years because I think he's I think he's speaking to what you're talking about which is that it it's something much deeper and that we have to get moved off of the intellectual plane to engage our whole our whole self <laughs> uh, with with another with ourselves with nature with whatever with the moment whatever we're engaging with but um okay that's all yeah so, well i appreciate your talk yeah move move what we forget is passing that koan um was often considered the start of someone's training. Mm -hmm. the, the decades and decades after that was learning how to integrate that insight, integrate that experience into your daily behavior, into how you met people and things. That was the work. While the insights were tough to come by, there was never the thought that an insight was enough. We lose sight of that. And the way the books hand things down, it's like bang, bang, bang. So and so was greatly enlightened. The end. <laughs> no, that's the beginning. Yes, Ken. Uh, Guo Gu had, I think, I think it was him had a little bit different take on jumping off the stepping off the hundred foot pole, and rather than it being like you've gotten somewhere it's like where you start from after you've come off and i really like that idea that you know there are these big obstacles or maybe going through the gateless gate would be the same thing and you think you've achieved something or graduating from college or whatever it's going to be or from grammar school or you know all these these uh steps are not getting there Yeah, like Mu was the beginning, the first koan, uh, but then people often end up stuck there. They end up having an insight that seems magical to them, 
and very profound kind of transformational experience for themselves. But if they can't move beyond it, if they can't step off the 100 foot pole, if they can't come back down, there's, there's a lot of sayings in the old books about Zen sickness and the stench of Zen. And it was the, the people that are floating around like everything is empty and they've had this insight, right? And they're, they're really not dealing with the reality. They haven't come back down. Um, a, uh, a high school friend of mine who, who in, was involved in a lot of sports, I was telling him that my, my grandson's doing long distance running now. And he said, the value of sports is that it teaches you how to lose, which is a similar thing, I think, to, um, to what you're saying, not necessarily losing, but, you know, like you, you have to solve the koan or whatever, complete it, and then you have to get over that, right, to get to the next one. And so it, it can be a barrier itself. Joel, were you going to say something? I'm terrified to ask this question. What, what does this phrase mean to pass a koan? What does it mean to pass mood? Um, basically, the, you know, the master, the teacher would give you a pass or failing grade. So you, and the way the process worked is you would, you would work with a koan like Mu. You know, they would ring the bell. You would come in for dokasan sit down and they'd say, okay, show me move. I'd be like, nope, ring the bell. And you do that, you know, a hundred or a thousand times, every time trying to answer it, trying to demonstrate your understanding that you had had an insight and you under, understood it. To pass it was to have your teacher say, you've got it. I'm imagining that part of that must be the willingness to show up and be rejected a hundred times or a thousand times or something. And be told, no, get out of here. Yeah. Over and over again. I tried to do a bit of Cohen study early on. Uh, and I remember asking Flint about it, because this was when I, when I was trying this, asked him his experience about it. Flint did some Cohen study for, I think, a short period with uh, Ruben Habito in Dallas, who's in our, who's a Renzai teacher. Who's, authorized to do this practice. We, we are not authorized here. So we talk about koans, but we don't, we don't use them in, in that trading mode. Anyway, so I asked Flint, you know, what was that koan study like for you? He said, mm, mostly anxiety producing, which is, uh, I could relate to as well, right? So yeah, you're, seems like it's very easy to get stuck in, in trying to pass them and trying to produce something. Olivia, yes. Uh, I'm not really sure uh, the source, but, but I know that the teacher quoted the source. Uh, but this koan that she offered at the end of a day long was something like uh please please don't worry there is no other way than to be who you are and where 
So that's a little bit parallel to some of the discussion earlier with with Joe about I guess meeting a empathetic point like but also of what you were saying that um, it's I forget the exact words but I really got it it is a transmission of a heart to heart basically is what you were saying and I apply that to myself sometimes. It helps. No other way. I'm here and who I'm who I am. Thank you.